Hello, I'm Paula Fanous and welcome to Formidables, a podcast series speaking from the heart of Western Sydney. In this podcast, I'll introduce you to amazing artists, young and old, who share with us about their creative careers. We are broadcasting from Darug country, so we pay respect to elders past, present and emerging. Good morning and welcome to Formidables. Today we've got two wonderfully exciting guests on the program. We've got Raghav and Vicky Van Hoot, both wonderful dancers with very important stories to tell. So, uh, Vicky, Raghav, would you please introduce yourself to our guests? I am a Wiradjuri woman who was born on Tharawal country in Wollongong, but works and is residing on Gadigal land. And this is where I'm coming to you from. Beautiful. Thank you. Raghav? Hi, my name is Raghav Fanda. I am uh, living on the land of Gamagal people, which is the area in and around Manly. And I work uh, pretty much in the city, which is, I think, is all of it is Gadigal land. But yeah, so I kind of switched between the two. I wished I worked more uh, where I lived. But uh, but I have to travel over the bridge every day. That's okay. It's a beautiful trip. So um, I know that both of you have a wonderful, um, deep relationship with each other, which a lot of people don't. And I know that, that relationship involves mentorship and, and nicknames and creative collaboration. So could you tell me a little bit about how you met and how that relationship has deepened over time? The cat's out of the bags there, Rock. <laughs> So I was teaching classes for another woman, uh, her name is Marilyn Miller, at NASDA on the weekends. And it was an initiative to keep other blackfellas, you know, their bodies in condition. And there was a young 19-year-old boy and his name was Raghavhandra. I didn't know his name. And he turned up, he turned up one Saturday and came to do class. He had on a pair of, uh, I think it was chocolate pants with pink writing. I love boys. And he turned up he turned up every week from there and I think he he was from then on he was the I he was the male in most of my first performances. And funnily enough, when we would go and do these so they were corporate gigs for Marilyn Miller's company called Fresh. And people would think that he was the lone Aboriginal man. <laughs> But we were all Aboriginal and he was Indian, but he looked apparently more Aboriginal than the Aboriginal people in the group. We did not take that to heart. It was a little in-joke. Well, I my side of the story is, um, so I met Marilyn at a, quite randomly at a party. And so she invited me to um, come do some classes. And then I was actually, at the, at, at the point I met her, I was doing West Side Story. I was playing Chino because um, I could pass for a Latino man. Anyway, so I rocked up at the old Nasda where, when, when, when it used to be under the bridge climb. So I rocked up and the, my, I remember my very first class. So Vicky was teaching and, and she was doing a pickup step. And, and then I kind of sort of was hoping that the real dancing will begin soon. But no good, that was the class. And <laughs> so <laughs> I think it, it, it was my first ever sort of uh, way in 
into contemporary dance and that kind of understanding that Vicky sort of brought of the body and the rigor of the body and the possibilities um what the body can do was phenomenal you know for me and as Vicky said over the next you know however many years I worked with her and I I learned a lot and I accumulated a lot of knowledge in my body and and I think so the relationship for me it kind of you know like I I kind of see her as the mothership <laughs> that I kind of dock along um side you know for inspiration and and energy so um yeah I think the operative word uh for those classes at that time was free <laughs> yes <laughs> they were free <laughs> they were they were affordable Yes, yes. So that was one of the reasons, yeah, that I kept coming back. And it was uh and the classes were I think well that they weren't the real classes because they were indigenous the languages that I were I was manipulating indigenous languages, dance languages and vocabularies and trying to establish my own uh technique and I've which I've still been you know experimenting with and so Raghav was he was my body he was one of my bodies there were three people back then it was a uh, ragav another hooky allenji woman henrietta baird and a younger woman uh, who would work with me rosalie pearson and the three of those dancers together they were my, they were my bodies and i you know i was given a great opportunity in turn so while i was learning to be a choreographer and an artistic director these guys were you know they were getting their legs but i was also gaining a lot from it it's beautiful the great growth that can happen in mutual submission there's so much learning happening but it's only because there's the humility on both sides to to give what you've got and and to see where that takes you that's really cool um and now speaking about your specific forms of dance i know that uh kathak is it kathak or kathak kathak yeah Kathak is one of the nine major forms of Indian classic dance, but I want to know more about what makes Kathak unique in the context of classic dance. What is really special about it as a dance form? Um if you were to look at the history of Kathak, it has its roots in northern India, uh very much in northern India and 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 it it originated as a result of um of colonization of northern India um through Mughal empire and and if you look at the physicality of it it is predominantly executed through straight legs and and a fast paced movement of the feet uh whereas a lot of other classical indian forms are um done in a in a bent diamond shape and and they and they're very curvy and 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 the rhythm patterns are, are are different as well so you know in its form in its uh, aesthetic kathak is is indian but i would say is more as a result of a mogul uh, interaction with northern india i uh, i was going to say rugs what is the because whenever i've seen kathak dance and is it is it my preconception i've seen a lot of turning yeah 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 and do, is that more than other um traditional mm. forms 
Yes, it is. Um, because um, Katak, uh, as I said, with uh, w- w- coming in with the Persian influence or other Mughal empire um, emperors that uh, invaded India, northern India, there's a lot of influence of Sufism. So, uh, Sufi, Sufi practices, and so a lot of the songs they are being inf- infiltrated by or had been uh, by the Hindu uh, religious um, language. So you know, a, a lot of the times the stories become about Krishna and Radha and, and his consort Radha, and and the and the flirtatious nature in between them. But there is a lot of um, uh, music influence, which is Hindustani, and the Hindustani music um, is a blend of northern indian but also has a has its roots in persian and a lot of that area uh, uh, southern iran afghanistan uh, azerbaijan you know um and so in that music and in the in the in the language there's a lot of um sufi practices so when you look at kathak turns they are basically uh giving you a through line from your heart to your soul through to the uh, higher power and by turning you arrive and you open that door to the higher power and so that's one of the practices of the more spiritual nature of the of the turn and the meaning of the turn is there a relationship sorry to butt in is there a relationship no. also with islam like yes only because mm. i was thinking about mm. akram khan yeah and so i was thinking yeah. about his dance and i remember there was a piece called zero degrees mm. and it was about two people Sidi mm. Labi and mm. and um Akram and their um common you know that that both of them were dancers that were um Muslims so I was just wondering yeah. if that also plays a role and if compared to the other forms like Odissi it, do they have uh, like a do they draw on multiple kind of um religious or anthropological mythological kind of threads yeah it does it does it uh, kathak is as i said uh the result and uh kind of like the product of the geographical movement and uh and the spiritual uh, infiltration so uh whereas if you look at odyssey and bharatnatyam uh for example um they uh, bharatanatyam is 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 majorly a southern indian dance form and th- that kind of um that kind of art form has had little influence from other religions like islam or um christianity or you know what have you whereas kathak because northern india was colonized for several centuries uh, one ruler after the other so they looked at the dance and each of them brought in their influence and from a time when it it was supposed to be in a temple then it became a court dance from a court dance it 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 kind of became became the form of expression of the wives the wives are uh, the ladies who danced for living and um practiced the art of everything fine and poetry and 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 mannerisms and and ha- and, and and artistic integrity and you know a lot of the higher uh, nobles uh, would send their sons over to them to learn the the art and to learn the the art of conversation and they learn the art of dance and 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 poetry so 
the the katak itself had so much function around it and so from a a, a dance done in a in a prayer in in a form of a prayer in a temple about radha and krishna it also had a, a passing on uh function you know of, of culture as well so with each influence coming into northern india the form shifted and uh and the purpose of it shifted you know and so if you look at northern uh, southern india it's 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 had different kind of shifts as well of course uh from the you know from um the tradition of dev dasis uh the ladies who um uh performed the dance in temples you know uh to not not being allowed to do it through colonization time of the colonization and then been coming out of colonization into a new context so you know so uh, the dance itself has gone through so many so many different influences but i feel kathak is unique in that because it's also had a lot of geographical upheaval and it's also had um a, a lot a lot of history of colonization from mogul emperors to um moguls to um you know uh british empire it's very very interesting because you think that when you have a pure dance form let's say uh, a purely indian kathak that that would be you know the most potent form and you'd think that every time you'd add an influence an exterior cultural influence it would weaken it but in fact it just deepens and diversifies it and um it reminds me of uh one of my favorite poets Khalil Gibran who um was both Lebanese and American and and um rather than it just being a purely middle eastern form of art or a purely western form of art he was able to speak to both of those worlds because he straddled those two worlds and so i have a question for vicky keith galash he described your work talk talk as dancing on a cultural knife edge and i imagine that that straddling of two worlds is something very close to your heart as a wiradjuri woman with lots of other cultures involved too So could you tell me a little bit more about your experience in that sense? Uh all right. I am known within my community to to put it colloquially as a shit stirrer. So I feel that the dance that I make is not just made for entertainment purposes. It's every work I make is a provocation. so it's a provocation not just for the audiences which are predominantly western uh it's also a provocation i also set out my works as a provocation for my community so it's to, to as community process so in plenty serious talk talk i was specifically i was looking i was looking to interrogate and examine uh the contemporary form and my role as an indigenous contemporary arts maker but also so because nowadays we have this thing you know we have this thing where we must locate ourselves we must locate our culture and we must stay within that culture that cultural space there are very tight parameters because you know we're not in the 1950s where people like Martha Graham appropriated you know um northern indian and new mexican dances into her practice we're not like the ballet dances the classical dances which amalgamated the folk dances from from all over europe into their practice 
we're not like uh, Ruth St. Dennis and Ted Sean who amalgamated Indian practices based on looking at an image of an Indian icon on either a cigarette case or a matchbook matchbox i thought it was mat matchbox yes I yes, yes, I, right. uh, yeah, yeah a matchbox so they took a lot of their they took a lot of uh they made a lot of dance vocabulary or generated a lot of vocabulary based on you know seeing stills not even experiencing culture but seeing stills of images and they animated them using their imaginations well that doesn't happen today because we're in fear of appropriation and we know about appropriation. But I think the lines that are drawn now are so tightly regulated that the freedom to create has become a, a very tightly navigated and very cautiously navigated space. So that's what Plenty Serious Talk Talk was about. I had a character called Miss Light Tan, who is, who, you know, you would think was maybe an Asian character tan but it's it's in relation to the fact that i'm you know a white aboriginal person that i can be white and aboriginal and the space that that you know the space i inhabit and the fact that i was taught my i was taught a, a large proportion of cultural dances or my history is comprised of dances that belong to other people in remote communities all around the country and then when I go to choreograph these languages, I exude these languages and they come out with their own kind of logic. But now I've had to censure myself. And so the work really was a call to my community to say, you know, where is that line? And to other and to non-Indigenous people so that they could see all of the tight parameters, the permissions, the protocols, so that they could maybe get a glimpse of an understanding as to how um, how tightly navigated and how precarious my position as an Indigenous contemporary dance maker is. And the fact that, you know, I have uh, my uh, physical legacy lives on in the artists like Raghav, you know, who now is, he has, you know, he has remnants, his body has been trained with my with my manipulated languages Mm. And he has augmented and travelled further with his languages. And then that in I hope that in turn, being a witness and a and a part of my interrogation, I you know, I can only hope that that is a part of Raghav's practice, that it's not only the physical that my, you know, the legacy I leave in his body is not only a physical one, but also an in, intellectual one. So it's about his relationship to the traditional form, his relationship as a, a part of an Indian diaspora living in Australia and what does the classical form, how, how does that affect who he is and the way he makes work because he is a contemporary, he is a contemporary dance maker. There you go. And speaking about what you use your... Um your voices which can speak to both in Vicky's case indigenous Australian Dutch cultures and in Raghav's case Australian and Indian cultures speaking about what you use those voices 
to do. I know that Raghav, last year you were commissioned to make a work for Sydney Dance Company um, about the Nazi appropriation of the swastika. And you said something really interesting, which I'll repeat here. Uh, Dance is my language and the place for me to start this conversation. And if I fail to start the conversation, however hard that conversation might be, then the usurper wins. And I thought that those words were really powerful. So I wanted to ask you to tell me more about that. As... As an artist, I feel as oh, actually as a human, I think we all have responsibility uh, uh, to to start a start a conversation about something that you feel that is unjust, um, and also, and and how are you going to approach that topic? You know, um, and in that work, you know, I had Vicky by my side as well. So, for me, when I when I look at when I look at swastika as a as a sim, as a symbol of um, hate and as a symbol of uh, death and destruction, I I kind of I have this relationship with where I kind of look at it and I do, still don't see the death and destruction because I never grew up or I was never given uh, that symbol as a as, as a as a thing to be disgusted, you know, about and. So for me, my relationship with it has always been of life and, and, and goodwill and peace and harmony. And so, so I've always looked at that symbol as a, as a thing that I can revere and not as a thing that I want to shout or, or put down. And, so, and I think that was a starting point for me to look at this work. Um, and it is hard. It is a hard conversation because, you know we've had to we've had to invite various member of you know members of jewish community and and um you know community at large just to have a opinion about what this could be going forward and and luckily you know everybody was on board i mean but it still is a very hard conversation um to have because it comes with a lot of weight it comes with a lot of um negativity that um, the Nazi occupation of, you know, uh, uh, destruction of Jewish people brought through that sign, through that symbol. symbol. So a lot of people now look at it, uh, particularly in Jewish people, you know, they look at it and they look at something that took away their ancestry, something that took away their lives, something that took away their uh, freedom, something that took away their um, dignity. So even just to talk about it it is i can i can understand how hard that can be for that person that's where the work kind of started well i'm really proud of you because um some conversations are difficult to have and yet they're very important to have um and i think that the artistic space is unfortunately like vicky said an increasingly politicized space unnecessarily i think um the creative space should be inviting and yet so, so often it's like a game of operation. Um, Absolutely. And I think um, artists can get away with a lot of things by putting it on stage as opposed to if I was to go down the road and say something and give my opinion. You know, they're, they're, so I think you, you, you are given a lot of um, freedom in that regard and there's a certain kind of license that you take in. Um, and, and I think, so I wanted to sort of start a conversation through something that I feel comfortable and confident in, and that's dance. Good, good, absolutely. Um, Vicky, 
Um, I know that your show, Brilliant, was the first show by an independent Indigenous choreographer to tour nationally, so that's incredible. And I know that you've also been nominated for the Australian Dance Award. And so what's it like to be a Wiradjuri woman and to have been blessed with these accolades in the complex contemporary Australian landscape? Uh, what does that feel like for you? Gee, that's normally something you ask somebody after the, you ask other people after they're dead about you. Uh, you know what I mean? It's normally a posthumous kind of you know discussion. Uh, I think I had to, you know, I had a lot of people. I didn't do, even though I'm an independent, I didn't do it by myself. There were so many people that came before me. And so I think this statement about being an independent that went on tour, I think this was, uh, I think this was in direct relationship to performance space because I don't think performance space had toured a work or maybe they toured something in 20 years. And I think, uh, you know, there have been a lot of very small kind of grassroots uh, or there have been grassroots groups that have um, toured and there, there have been two, you know, two companies, two big companies that have preceded me. And, you know, there's also Marigeku, which is a, like a medium-sized company. But as an independent, I think it was really important because... And this is not, I, I was writing about this this morning, so I might just get off track a bit. But I was writing about um, the emergence of or the, 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 um, the notoriety and the visibility of Aboriginal dance or the re-emergence of Aboriginal contemporary dance through Bangara. And that Bangara, because of its dance theatre, because of its ubiquity and because of its high touring schedule and its visibility, it, uh, for a lot of people, they equated Indigenous contemporary dance with Bangara and that there was nothing else happening. And actually I was reminiscing, and I don't know if Raghav, if you were in this gig, but we did something in 2007 for the Helpman Awards. It was the opening of the Helpman Awards. Mm. Were you in that one, Rugs? It was at, um, uh, yes, it was for... The Capital um, Theatre. Yeah, Capital Theatre. Yeah. All right, so when we did it, I came in with a specific choreography and it was kind of punchy and it was energetic and actually I played one of the men and then bit by bit they got me to change the choreography. Can you slow it down from double time to half time? Can we just have one man or two men? So then I changed genders and I had to jump out of one costume and dance in another costume as a, as a gentle female. So they had to change the presence. And then it was, uh, can we not have the dancers emerge from the wings? Can we, have them, can we have them emerge from the ground like spirits? Then I'd overheard on the cans somebody say, and now we'll just go over the Bangara opening. And I was just like, oh, my God. I, it's not Bangara, and if you wanted Bangara, it, probably you couldn't afford Bangara, so you got me instead, but you wanted me to emulate Bangara. So I think what I've done as an independent is that I've always tried to, pro, you know, promote the idea that, you know, there is a diversity out there. And, and, and this is something now because of, you know, locating your geographical space, people have, you know, people are, beginning to understand but the ubiquity of the Bangara aesthetic 
was both a blessing and a curse in that it made it, they've gone like this, they've gone, they've licked their finger and they've got, you know, they've put a little a chalk outline or a little mark in the air and they've gone, well, we've got our Aboriginal, you know, we've got our Aboriginal representative. We don't need anything else. So it's kind of been this hard slog to push and to go, well, actually, I'm not going to do something that portrays me as something from an exotic past. I'm doing something that is relevant about what it means to be an Aboriginal person living in, you know, a multicultural society, that we're a part of a fabric, that we're not this thing that's relegated to a past, and that culture is a living and breathing thing and it accommodates us into the future. And that, so, you know, I have bigger designs that, you know, I wrote a manifesto, you know, and I published it on, it was just 10 lines and I published it on uh, Facebook and it was the Contemporary Indigenous Dance Manifesto and it was about being here, doing it, dance being contemporary Indigenous dance, you know, Aboriginal contemporary Indigenous dance, being a part of, you know, world dance domination and that everybody was able to do it, any willing body could do it, you know what I mean? So it's, it's about also for me and maybe I'm bucking trends it's about accessibility. So it's not about being exclusive. It's about being inclusive and finding the avenues where non-Indigenous people specifically can learn to appreciate or have an opportunity to appreciate the dance by doing it. So that's my thing, not just by watching as a choreographer. So teaching has been a very big part of my practice, you know, because I want other people to experience it because I think that's the only way we can have, you know, we can realise things like reconciliation, you know, this ideal. Because I think also, which is, you know, maybe bucks the trend, I think those places of friction, you know, at the moment, maybe they're not so good. They're actually abhorrent in many cases. But those, those places of friction, the gaps, the, the crevices, the, those are the exciting places and spaces for making work they're the reason half of the works exist if there wasn't conflict we wouldn't be finding so many expressive ways to mediate it Mm. you know what I mean Mm. so that's what Mm. it's meant for me in my space And I think I'll just add to um, uh, Paula uh, about Vicky's word brilliant you know Um, in that it the work was very much of the time. It spoke to, um, it has a, it had content of, um, it had a, a queer content in it, you know. It had um, content of non-Indigenous person doing Indigenous movement and, and, and to the effect where it was embedded, you know, throughout the work, how the relationships, different relationships were forming and, and how, how the cast was interacting with the, with the river of uh, cars that v- Vicky made. And, and I think so, uh, everything in the work was thought out through the lens of, um, of the land and of contemporary Aboriginal land and not a thing of that happened you know, 20 years ago, although uh, Vicky's thought process about the story of uh, a duck, you know, a black duck kind of inspired the sections of the sections in the work. But it had a quite a lot of punch of today's world in, in terms of, you know, how drunk we get. How, how do we dance when we get drunk? You know, we're allowed to get drunk. Yeah. 
you know, that mm. we don't, that you can't look down on us when we're, we're, you know, that for some people it's okay, for some people it's okay to drink and then for others it's it's a cultural, it's part of a cultural cringe mm. and that, and, you know, not maybe not the right to drink maybe is the is the bigger bigger thing there you know uh who is allowed to do what mm. but those bloody cards oh my god it had, <laughs> we had it, it, the set had featured a, a 16 meter river of playing cards each of them was individually stuck and we, they had, had to be re- crevice and yeah glued on and and it had to be remounted every day and they would yeah. dance over it so that you could hear the f- but each card was also a dot. So it was, so the set, it was a topographic map. Uh, it was a topographic map, but it was also a piece of uh, work of art. So uh, what I was doing there is saying, you know, what is the contemporary, uh, what is the contemporary equivalent of a dot painting? And so it was the set. And we inhabited the set the way you would look at an Aboriginal painting. So at times the set and the action on the set was very busy because when you look at a, a dot painting, the whole narrative is there before you. So when you look at a Western painting, you'll see a moment in time, you know, the the Vermeer, is it Vermeer, the lady with the pearl earring, and she's just mm. looking at you, you know, mm. she's, she's there and she's looking at you and that's it. It's a captured moment in time. But when you look at an Aboriginal dot painting, you're seeing the whole narrative. So I thought, how could I do that in a dance? Well, uh, you know, I got panned by the critic by the critics in Melbourne because they were like, oh, my God, it's a McMansion of a set. There's too much going on. I don't know where to look. But it was kind of so that is also another thing. It's about breaking the parameters of Western, you know, the Western theatrical parameters. We've got a three-act play. Let's watch. Let's make a proposition let's have a let's have a climax and let's have a resolution so it was kind of like let's let's put it all out there and let's see you know let the audience decide where their eyes are going to go so there was a lot going on in that one well i won't even begin to to summarize that because you have well and truly broken all the parameters and i think that's kind of the point um but i did really enjoy the moving away from the tokenization of the indigenous voice, the indigenous narrative and revealing the complexity. And I also really enjoyed taking away the um, exclusivity of, of indigenous dance and making it um, accessible to all people, including non-indigenous people, uh, because that opens the door for genuine understanding, collaboration, and it removes that, you know, politicization of um worrying about cultural appropriation or worrying about being disrespectful because until we can connect as humans and and risk saying the wrong thing there's not going to be any meaningful dialogue and i think that your work opens that door so great job this has become kind of a tradition on our podcast um let's say there's a young man or a young lady in western sydney right now 16 years old 18 years old and they're listening to this very inspired and they'd love to follow in your footsteps and become dancers or um multidisciplinary artists what do you have to say to them uh as a word of advice do it do Do it it. just don't 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 delay just do it 
if that means turning on a YouTube video clip and copying that, that's it. It, uh, if that means going out and making a proposition for yourself, I'm going to skip to the end of the street, then that's it. Reading about it, immersing yourself in it, just giving yourself up to it, I think that's what you have to do. You have to go, I don't, like maybe reserve a bit of judgment and just go, this is what it is to be my body in this moment and to let that be the guide that takes you forward. I reckon Beautiful. have a go and um, and own it, really. Um, it's only by doing that you will find out whether it is for you or it is not. You know, so there is a there is a really really big following for Michael Jackson, for example. You know, from a lot of kids dancing in their rooms with their hairbrushes. You know, so that's where it starts, really. And and I'm sorry, I don't. I'm not really aware of a lot of um, the current music, uh, pop music <laughs> choices out there. Uh, but you know, Lady Gaga. But hang on, she's not current, is she? Anyway, but um, so um. You can tell how much I listen to the pop music, but but I guess it's it's take that brush and go outside and actually just do it. And it's only by doing you'll find out whether this is the life for you. And oh, then also. maybe not just the 16-year-old, can I say maybe even the 26-year-old, <laughs> the 36-year-old, and maybe even the 46-year-old. You can have a career in dance or you can dance for pleasure or whatever. You can, mm. you can do that at any age and that it's mm. not exclusive to the... It's not exclusive to the 16-year-old. It's not an opportunity just for the 16-year-old. Some people are just coming into their own and finding their bodies when no, they retire. No, you're right, Nick, because uh, my mum yeah, is really good uh, what, in her early 70s and it's now that she's starting to dance and um, and she's making video clips of herself. So, <laughs> so it's like, oh, God, and she sends it, sends them to me, WhatsApp to me. What do you think? Oh, did you like the choreography? Did you like the third paragraph? And I, and I go, sorry, I haven't watched it. It was too long. <laughs> But anyway, oh, you, you're right. Uh, you, we will have to watch it together, Vic. <laughs> we'll have to make responses to your mum for our project. <laughs> yes. Okay. Thank you so much, Vicky. Thank you, Ragab. It's been an absolute pleasure to meet you and to speak to you. And I've, I've learned a lot. And I'm sure our audience has too. So have an amazing day. And this has been Formidables. You've been listening to Formidables, a podcast series commissioned and produced by Form Dance Projects. We thank Riverside Theatres, Diversity Arts and Information Cultural Exchange for their partnership, and we thank the Crown Resort, the Packer Foundation, and Create New South Wales for making this possible. I hope you all feel inspired and excited. Stay creative and stay tuned.